moving across the country, making friends with the open road, turning this show down into a real beast to listen to. It's the follow-up showdown road show with Travis and Lauren. Also, they got two cats named Mozzarella and T'Challa. Back to the future, where we're going. We're on a road trip. Uh, don't use that. Cut that. I think it's important we talk about um, Tom F. Wilson. He is... You want to talk about unsung heroes. Him. He has, in the first movie, just two, three roles. Middle-aged 1985 Biff, teenager 1955 Biff, and neutered middle-aged 1985 Biff. And he plays them all so perfectly. And he plays them all so earnestly. And they're such diverse characters for being the same person but you still you still completely get the sense that that they're, the character is consistent obviously Bully 1985 Biff is a pretty straight line from Bully 1955 Biff but even neutered 1985 Biff you still feel like yeah that's Biff he was a hotshot in high school he got put in his place and then he all he had to fall back on was his Biffness um, and he still has his own business so it's not like he's a drooling moron. And obviously, as you get into Back to the Futures 2 and 3, his the richness of his characters grow. And and everyone's doing, like, double or triple duty in the movies, uh, so everyone kind of gets their own little moments to shine, but nobody, nobody, nobody does it like uh, Mr. Wilkins. Mr. Tompkins? Tom Wilkins? It's not Wilkins. Uh... Um, Tom F. Wilson. Okay, so we're still a little ways from Albuquerque, but I wanted to record something for you. Uh, so let's talk about the first time I saw Back to the Future. I don't remember. Back me, to the... back. <laughs> no, don't. Sorry. Don't do that. <laughs> The Back to the Future has always been a movie that I've known about. It's not a movie that we owned, so it was always a treat to see it. And we got to see it usually just on TBS. Now, I'm more of a Back to the Future 2 guy myself, but we're going to stick to Back to the Future 1. Lauren, do you remember your first time seeing Back to the Future? I don't. It was also just uh, always such a part of my childhood that I couldn't tell you the first time. I can tell you that to this day, I still have trouble remembering what's in which movie because it fits so fucking perfectly together. It's honestly pretty amazing that how, how fluidly it just all fits together and how I'll be like, wait, but what about this? And I'll be like, ah, because of that thing. I'm like, oh my God. Um, so no, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I like three. Okay. Excellent points all around. I also like three. Uh, I will say that it does fit together so perfectly. I was not aware for years uh, that it wasn't 
there were no sequels planned originally and that the ending was a joke ending. Uh, there was also a five-year gap, I'm sure Paul has mentioned that, between the two. For that reason, I don't quite know what took so long to make a sequel. I guess things just moved a little slower back then. Lauren, as a little girl, you had a big crush on Ferris Bueller. And I feel like Marty McFly shares similar energy, similar 80s DNA. Did you ever have a crush on Michael J. Fox? I feel like I did like a little, little bit, but not enough that it stands out. Like, I would not have thought of it unless you prompted me just now. Whereas, whereas with Ferris Bueller, I'd be like, oh yeah, Matthew Broderick was a cutie for a long time. Yeah, he's a dime for sure. What about Christopher Lloyd? A little. <laughs> TBH. Um, for all of you listening out there, I would encourage you to check in with your partners on this one. It may sound like a joke, but I think you'll find that more people than you might expect have got a little bit of heat under their engine for Mr. Lloyd. Uh, he's funny. What can I say? I got a type. Boom. I think it's tragically fitting, Paul, that we're doing Back to the Future as Lauren and I are on a road trip away from L.A. Because in L.A., you can just go visit so many of the shooting locations for Back to the Future, which I did very frequently. We went to that Burger King all the time. We went to that Burger King all the time. That's right, the Burger King next to Doc Brown's house. Uh, we also went to Doc Brown's house, the Gamble House. I'm sure you went over all of this in the show, so I'm not going to sit here and list every single location. But the street in Pasadena with all the roads, that's a great visit. You can see, like, four of the houses right there. And the church that they filmed the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, right down the street from where I sometimes worked at the Lowe's in the Highland Center. Literally like a block, literally like a block away, not even down the street. Yeah. Uh, so as we're on the road trying to think of things to say about Back to the Future, and at this point, what more could be said? I just keep thinking about all the locations we left behind. Paul, we're about to head out from the hotel to go get some local treats at New Way Burger in Wichita, Kansas. But since I'm here and doing a nostalgia tour, I remember now reading the movie novelizations of Back to the Future when I was in the fifth or sixth grade out here. I don't remember this, what I'm about to tell you. This is information that I got subsequently from Mario much later. And if anyone knows about this, it would be Mario. So I trust him. But a fun fact about the novelizations for the Back to the Future trilogy is that every chapter begins with the words, Great Scott. And if anyone looks that up and it turns out it's wrong, uh, it's Mario. Mario got it wrong, not me. Hi, Paul. We're still in Wichita. The cats are finally eating, which I'm very happy about. And I just wanted to comment on uh, the music in Back to the Future. All three of them. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. Anyway, um, I think that Back to the Future has one of the best scores of all time. It's so iconic, and it's very exciting, and it gets you pumped, um, I think, without fail. The second you hear that music, you get excited, and you know shit's about to go down. 
Um, Alan Silvestri, of course, always wonderful. But um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about that because that truly is a fantastic score. And um, the end. Hi, Paul. We're eating St. Louis's famous emo pizza and wings. Oh, man. And honestly, I feel like Lauren hasn't had the opportunity to share enough Back to the Future tidbits. She's having a little bit of trouble focusing on it as we're in the middle of a stressful drive haranguing two cats. So I'm going to try to make it a little bit easier on her. And I'm going to ask Lauren... While you're eating this slice of Emo's pizza, Mm. uh, what is your favorite Back to the Future moment? Moment? Oh, man. (sighs) It is uh, in the first one, whenever Doc cannot quite, like, he just keeps running into problems with uh, connecting the uh, extension cord to to the clock tower, you know, to allow the lightning to strike the DeLorean and send... Uh, Marty back in Back to the Future. It's it's so exciting. Every time I'm like, ooh, is he gonna make it? And he like has to go down and like un- unhook it. And then he's like, anyway, it's very exciting. So that moment is always a very compelling reason to watch the movie alone. It's a good moment, Lauren. Hi, Paul. Let's talk about Back to the Future 2. Back to the Future 2 is my personal favorite of the trilogy because you get such a variety. You get 1955, first Back to the Future. You get to revisit that movie. You get the amazingly fun 2015 future. You get scary 1985A Hill Valley, which as a kid, I did not understand what was going on. All I understood was that it was scary and bad where they were. I didn't even realize that Biff's Casino was on the courthouse until years and years later. Uh, Lauren, what do you what, what, what? How do you feel about Back to the Future Two? I know I said previously that three is my favorite, um, and it's just hard to choose because two really does give you that amazing like. It just all fits together so well with one, especially considering they weren't you know planning for a sequel. It all fits together really well. It's really interesting. Uh, Ultimate nineteen eighty five looks suspiciously like twenty twenty. Um, uh, I just think it's a really exciting story. And it's done, very, it's done very well. And I wish that they had kept in the part where um, Biff returns from the past and then disappears because he has fucked up, you know, the timeline for himself. That's an interesting thing that I think they should have kept it. I don't think it would have been confusing. I wish we had gotten Leia Thompson playing Marlene McFly. I think she would have done great in that role, and I always like to see the actors doing double, triple, quadruple duty. Oh god, the cat made it to the front seat. Oh my god. Okay, cat situation temporarily under control. Uh, Michael J. Fox does a wonderful job as Marlene McFly and Marty McFly Jr. Uh, Or if maybe not Leah Thompson, maybe we could have gotten Elizabeth Shue as Marlene McFly. I don't understand why you would go through the effort of casting the comedic talents of Elizabeth Shue only to use her very sparingly. I mean, you get that marvelous I'm old, I'm young pass out, which is great. Uh, In the physical comedy, she uses inside the house to kind of like sneak around and stuff. She's just really great and really underutilized. I I would say if there is a, a dark mark on the Back to the Future trilogy, it's, it's Elizabeth Shue not being 
used to her full potential. But that shark, right? That shark. Oh. That was, you know, to an eight-year-old, that was the dream. That was the coolest thing. That and the hoverboard. Uh, 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 uh. No. And then Tom F. Wilson turning in amazing performances as the Griff, incredible. And old man Biff, a return to the, a return to his true self. What? Oh God! Oh God! The other one got up. Oh God! Okay, Paul. We're at a rest stop right now. We had to pull over and do a little cat wrangling. Uh, we're coming up on the last few days of the trip. The cats are not acclimating well, but they have discovered a more efficient system for getting into the front seat. estimate how many times you've seen this trilogy. I'm sorry to say it's a lot to still be confused by it. I've probably seen them all like, oh, 10 plus times in my life, surely. I was, uh, I I was like dumb for a long time. Uh, me too, me too. And I feel like I've seen the trilogy way more than that. Uh, not a brag, not a brag, a little bit of a brag, but not a huge brag. Because I remember waiting so eagerly for the DVDs to come out in 2004. And then when they did come out, they were formatted wrong. Mm. The widescreen and full screen DVDs were the same aspect ratio. And I know it sounds nitpicky, but I could tell because in Back to the Future 2, you couldn't see the little blinking button on the bottom of Marty's jacket when it was dry. Your jacket is now dry. Couldn't see it. I was very upset. I would be too. Widescreen's bullshit. No. I mean, full screen's bullshit. There you go. Okay, Lauren, it's, it's, we're on the last day of our trip on the road and it's, it's been a, it's been a long, stressful journey. So we haven't recorded as much Back to the Future stuff for Paul as I had hoped. So today we're going to be doing a lot of recording. Okay, so before we move on to Back to the Future 3, let's talk Back to the Future 2. Okay. What is your favorite time period in Back to the Future 2? Oh man, I mean the future. We already got the 50s in Back to the Future 1, so seeing that new era, it's a lot of fun. It's always cute and fun to see what the uh, 80s thought the 2000s were going to be like. Um, so yeah, I like that part. I have to imagine most people's answer is 2015. Not everyone. I'm sure a lot of people like seeing the 50s from another angle or 1985A because you get, you know, crazy, crazy Biff. Well, that's just a bummer. Yeah. Uh, no. Bad cat. Uh, I'd like to point out that the reason that 2015 looks like that in the movie is because... The Bobs, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, always hated it when a movie was set in the future and then when you got to that year, they didn't look like that because of course it doesn't. Yeah. So they decided to go with the joke future. The idealized science fiction nonsense. Oh my God. Mozzarella. Okay, sorry about that, Paul. I'm driving now and Lauren's on Catwatch. Mozzarella's in the back pouting. 
know. Mozzarella is under the driver's seat. I'm very stressed about it. We're both pretty stressed, but let's talk about Back to the Future. Uh, part two. So Back to the Future 2 ends uh, on a cliffhanger, as you heard in the McMaster Minute with Doc Brown being struck by lightning and uh, blasting into the past. And then you get a trailer for Back to the Future 3. Notably in the trailer is an alternate line. 55. An alternate. Okay, I'm going 65, so I'm going to slow it down again. Slow it down. I'm trying to get up to, hey, trying to get up to 88 miles an hour. Uh, there's an alternate take in the Back to the Future tree, 3 trailer that's attached to the end of Back to the Future 2 when Doc says, that's right, Tannen. He, he, he puts a little more mustard on it in the trailer. And in the, in the actual film, he's a uh, cucumber soup. So that takes us nicely into Back to the Future 3. Lauren, what do you think of Back to the Future 3? Um, I think it's a lot of fun. I don't really understand the hate people have for it. Um, like, it's very different from the first two, I'll give you that. But it's a logical jump, you know, in the storyline. It makes sense. Um, mostly for Doc's part, I'd say. I say it's more a good way to wrap up Doc's story than Marty's. Um, but it's a good time. Who doesn't like a good cowboy story? Um, turns out of quite a few people. Hmm. I agree. It is a good time. It's Doc's movie. That's why they have the line in Back to the Future 2 that they added a good 30 or 40 years to Doc's life so that he could enjoy uh, a marriage to Miss Clara Clayton, Mary Steenburgen, and have some kids and have a sort of full family experience. Oh, God! Okay, sorry about that. I think things are under control again. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Let's do a quick speed round where we just say nice things about Back to the Future 3. Mary Steenburgen. ZZ Top song. Very, very good. That was stuck in my head. That was my jam back in the day. ZZ Top cameo. Michael J. Fox and Leah Thompson doing Irish accents. Doc has a single shot of alcohol and has to be woken up with like a very spicy drink, which as a child, I didn't totally understand what was happening there. Wake up juice. I understood because I'd seen Looney Tunes. Buford, Mad Dog Tannen. Marty's outfit when he first gets to the Wild West. Cinematographer Dean Cundy in a cameo as the photographer who takes the famous picture of Doc and Marty at the clock. Doc's gross ice cube that he makes. It's ugh, it's yellow. It shouldn't be that color. What I like about that uh, quote-unquote refrigerator is that it looks just like the machine Donatello is using in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song. How about some cowboy movie legends sitting in the saloon for the entire movie. Oh, yeah. Everybody, everywhere will say Clint Eastwood is a coward. It's a voice you can't forget. Uh, I really like the time travel train. Oh, the time travel train. I know everyone likes to mockingly go, oh, time train, ooh, space train, as though using a mocking tone of voice and identifying a noun is enough to be a critique. But that train looks cool as hell. Mary Steenburgen's use of golly. Uh, wrapping up Marty, Marty's uh, character arc with the race against needles. Oh, and I absolutely love Papa Santa Doc Brown doling out advice with his big leather gloves. Uh, a really fun aspect of the entire trilogy, but something that I feel like gets showcased particularly in Back to the Future 3 is the outrageous height difference between Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. 
meant that to frame them, they had to do a lot of moving around rooms, running back and forth, because otherwise Christopher Lloyd has to bend in half to share the frame with Michael J. Fox, which is something you see a lot in Back to the Future 3 because they're just out in the open wilderness or in a home. They, they don't have as much action they can do. I think that's very charming. That's funny. Paul, we've just crossed into Virginia, and I had a thought about Back to the Future Part 3. In the scene, when the marvelous Mary Steenburgen is leaving Hill Valley on the train, and she overhears two gentlemen talking about how broken-hearted Doc was in the saloon, she whips around and asks if this man had great big brown puppy dog eyes and long flowing silvery hair. In the original script, they had written the descriptor being more along the lines of wild-eyed, wild hair, something to that effect. And it was, I can't remember who, someone's wife, I think, like Zemeckis' wife or Gail's wife, I don't recall, showed the script and she said, well, no, she wouldn't, she wouldn't see him that way. She would describe him lovingly. And I think about that every single time I see that scene. And I think it's darling. That's so nice. Travis, did you think of it because the Welcome to Virginia sign said Virginia is for lovers? Uh, I thought about it because I am, on some level, always thinking about Back to the Future Part 3. Hi, Paul. It is 5.30 in the morning, February 28th, Durham, North Carolina. We have had to change hotels in the middle of the night due to errant carbon monoxide detectors. So I figured now is as good a time as any for my big Back to the Future story. This might be a little long, so I'm gonna try and edit it for you. In 2015, the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future, I was a PA for a British comedy special called Keith Lemon's Back to the Future Retrospective. Keith Lemon is a character played by BAFTA award-winning actor Lee Francis, uh, very big in England, and he was doing a Back to the Future retrospective here in America. So through that, I got to do, for like a week a lot of really cool Back to the Future stuff. Uh, some stuff was things anyone could do. Go to the Marty McFly house, go to the Pasadena Street, see the houses, yada, yada. Got to see him film some sketches and stuff. He's very funny, and it was a great crew. I had a really fantastic time, and I'm still friends with a lot of them to this day. I got to sit in on interviews with the actor who played Goldie Wilson, very charismatic and charming man. The original Jennifer, Claudia Wells. And for me, the feather in my cap of it all, I got to sit in on an interview with Bob Gale, co-writer, 
producer, Bob Gale. He brought to the interview <clears throat> a lot of props from the movies. I got to see and hold original concept art of 2015 Hill Valley. I got to hold and see original props like the newspapers that have the changing headlines, transition newspapers with lots of blank space, the original newspapers, things like that. I got to get, I got a pretty awesome picture taken with Bob Gale where I made him laugh. Very proud of that one. I'll try and drum up the picture for you. And he brought one of the, what they call hero props. It's a prop used on screen. It was one of the hoverboards. It was a foam hoverboard with a little wire stand, so it looked like it was hovering. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the one that was sitting next to Marty when he burns the almanac, because you can see it sitting in a little patch of grass. Uh, a charming little addendum. Ooh, cut out where I say charming little addendum. I'm very tired. I get pretentious when I'm tired. Is that after the interview wrapped up, I, as the helpful PA I was, offered to stay behind and help Bob, that's what I call him, my good friend Bob, with his various Back to the Future props. Of course, my generosity, my largesse runneth over. I'd be more than happy, Mr. Gale, to handle these props from Back to the Future and help you to your car. So we go down to the lobby and we're waiting for the valet to bring the car around. And the young man who was working there, waiting next to us, notices the props and he says, hey, isn't that a hoverboard? Isn't that from Back to the Future? And the three of us, me and Bob and one of the other people on production were just kind of smiling. We're like, yeah, yeah, it's Back to the Future stuff. And he goes, man, I really like those movies. And we're all smiling at each other. Like, yeah, yeah, they're good movies. They're really good. And he's like, I even liked that third one. A lot of people didn't, but I really liked all of them. And we were like, yeah, man, th those are great movies. Uh, I so desperately wanted to grab him and point at Bob Gale and say, you know, he it's because of him. This is the man. But in Hollywood, Paul, as you know, we play it cool. So I didn't. And I helped him into his car, gave him all his stuff, and off he went. Uh, and we also got to go on to, um, of course, the, uh, the sets the Universal sets, the Hill Valley Square, which I have been lucky enough to be on a handful of times, either through going on tours at Universal, working at Universal, being able to walk around the back lot. I've been on the Hill Valley set square a number of times. Um, but certainly the coolest time was on this Keith Lemon Back to the Future retrospective, where, because as a fan of Back to the Future and a disgusting suck-up. I wore my Doc Brown Back to the Future 2 train shirt that was an original Orlando, Florida Back to the Future The Ride wardrobe. And don't worry about how or where I got that. But I was wearing it as my first day on PA, so they let me be in the retrospective. I drove the golf cart that was pulling Lee, dressed as Marty McFly, on a skateboard, a la the beginning of the first Back to the Future. And if you can find that British TV show, that British special, you should be able to see me in it. 
um, as well as a fairly entertaining and funny retrospective on the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future. Uh, and then I, I guess edit this so that like the most interesting part of that story is at the end. Honey, is there an interesting ending to that? She says it's already interesting. I guess the interesting thing is, like I said, I'm still, I'm still chummy with a lot of those people because they're great. But I did, I did form one very special and lasting friendship with the stylist on the show, whose name is Heather and lives in England, and we still talk regularly to this day. So, Back to the Future continues to be a movie that gives. And since we're in Durham, Paul, tomorrow. We're going to go to our new rental, our new home, and from there, in the least echoey room we can find, we will give you our Back to the Future sequel pitches. Now I guess I'm going to watch that sunrise. Hi, Paul. Lauren and I are in our new home in North Carolina, pretty much unpacked, the end of our journey, and we have for you the second ever combined pitch for a Back to the Future sequel. A Lorvis Mc, McCorney? Yeah, Lorvis McCorney. Hoity toity toity. I'll even lend you a hat. So this is our pitch. For Back to the Future. I think we should say that for the end because it's such a cool title. All right, I'm bleeping that. Okay. Should we do a new one? Just mm. so, okay. No, I'm going to bleep. You, you can speak, speak with a loud, clear voice. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. I, Dr. Emmett Brown, am about to embark on an historic journey. So the pitch is set today. Modern, modern day sequel. We're going to open with Marty and Jennifer um, having dinner with their kids. Normal looking home, you know, whatever, set of modern family. And then suddenly, like in Back to the Future 1, the kids start to vanish. Marty and Jennifer are shocked, appalled. Um, as soon as that happens, we hear that trademark, you know, the time machine. And in comes, bursts, in bursts, Dr. Emmett L. Brown through the door with some kind of wristwatch device. And he slaps it on the wrist of the, the first person he comes across, which is Jennifer. He's got another one. He goes to slap it on Marty's wrist. Right through him. Marty vanishes. Ba, ba, da, ba, ba, etc. So... Doc, also wearing one of these little watches, it's got a little flux capacitor on it. He has, after the events of the first film, not only upgraded the DeLorean, but upgraded his safety measures. He's got these little flux capacitor wrist watches that he gives to them that he's wearing as well, which will protect them from the influences of time stream disruption. He grabs Jennifer and they go on they exit into like a, a time tra a time train esque vehicle. It's going to be sort of like an RV type deal. Uh, it's not going to be that 
that exact train, but some kind of cool new vehicle. They go on, and Doc and Clara explain that their kids also vanished. But Doc managed to save themselves. Because, well, I don't know, the kids weren't in the lab, and the guy, they were... I don't know, we'll figure it out. <clears throat> their kids seem to have vanished from the timeline, which is a paradox. He cannot figure out what happened, or why this paradox hasn't caused more disruptions along the way, more logical disruptions. He's been tracking the paradox through time. They are going to be going through the timeline and tracking down these disruptive paradoxes. So now they need to figure out what's been happening, what's been changing, and where's Marty? And, you know, the kids. Um, I'm not sure if this is a reveal that's going to happen later or if it's something we'll establish early on. But there is going to be what I'm calling Dark Doc Brown. Dark Doc. Something got changed in the past, creating another, like, 1985A darkest timeline scenario. When that happened, that Doc Brown who lived there created, just like our Doc, a flux capacitor watch to protect him from any other changes in the timeline. He then went through the timeline himself, and he's the one who's been disrupting things. Jennifer and Clara and Doc are going out across the time stream to look for the solution. So they're going to be, we're going to be bouncing all through time, uh, going to some different places in time and seeing some different versions of Marty, Jennifer, and Clara and Doc along the way. Uh, I'm going to throw it to Lauren now to talk to you about some of our alternate characters. Well, because Clara doesn't exist, you know, past feasibly 1940-ish, um, she is able to go out and scout, you know, like she like she'll she'll catch wind of a change in a timeline. She'll go out and check it out because she is not at risk for meeting her other self because there isn't any. However, one time she goes out and she sees herself and she freaks out and she's like, whoa, how does this happen? There's no, there's no me's around. And it turns out that uh, she's been sent out in other timelines as well to investigate clues. So now she has to keep her wits about her, make sure she doesn't interact with her other alternate universe selves being sent back to this timeline. Okay, so some of the characters we're going to encounter and have a lot of fun with along the way are in the 90s, Marty and Jennifer are surfer bro stoner types in a band together. Marty plays the guitar, Jennifer sings, and they're just doing their own thing, vibing on the beach. In the 2000s, we're going to have a couple of scenarios. Uh, Marty and Jennifer are high-powered business people working for a future tech company. Their marriage is sparse due to their mutual absorption in their jobs, but they don't consider it an unhappy marriage. They're just like, oh, this is the future. This is how things are. Another 2001 is Marty and Jennifer are seen in hologram form as their bodies rest. In this future, dreaming is just your conscious walking around as a hologram. Kind of like the Matrix. Pretty cool. Um, I have, just have a couple more characters we'll see. Crazy 12 Monkeys Doc, a la Brad Pitt. Monster Truck Driver Jennifer. Car Salesman Marty. He sucks at it. PBS Mr. Wizard Doc. Uh, conspiracy Theory Addict Marty. He makes uh, videos for YouTube and talking about his crazy thoughts. 
uh, pretentious turtleneck Jennifer. She does like slam poetry at a coffee shop kind of deal. And rich, weird Doc. God knows what he could do with that brain and all that money. So some of this is just going to be like as the movie goes on and the paradoxes keep popping up and like chaos is kind of like as time is stretching to try to fix itself around these characters who have these flux capacitor watches, things are getting more and more um, elastic. So some of these things will just be little throwaways, things like that. The timelines seem to be commingling and converging and is very destructive and damaging. You know, probably it's not good. Uh, and what we find out is that Dark Doc, he's got this uh, sort of map of the time continuum. And what he's doing is he's going through and he's changing little, medium, and big things along the way, trying to reshape the reality to whatever it is he dictates it should be, to be the best. Because in his dark timeline, it's really rough. I don't know if he's got an eye patch or a scar on his face or he, like, walks with a cane. Like, something happened. We can really tell this guy's, it's rough. His DeLorean's all beat up and gnarly. Um, so whatever it is, like, we sympathize with him. Something really bad has happened. He's just trying to get himself home, and he doesn't want to, knowing what he knows about science, he doesn't want to lose his his death of his self, you know, the conscious death, where he will, reality will change along with him, or he will change along with reality. So he's trying to avoid that. He's got this map, and he's going through, and he's changing all of these things, and that's what kind of our our party is following along behind him. Uh, things like when when Beach, Marty, and Jennifer are playing a concert, he, like, ruins the concert. He unplugged, he, like, kills the power or whatever, and they're like, there he is, we've got to get him, and they chase him, you know, whatever. Fun things like that. Uh, maybe something with the monster trucks, too, I'm not sure. Uh, but the cathartic ending we're going to have, because I know it's a bummer. I know Dark Doc is a bummer. Nobody wants to see that. It's unfortunate. What we're going to do, and the lesson we're teaching with this movie, is that you can't predict or control the future. You can try, you can make good educated guesses, but everything's going to change on a dime for all you know. And when Doc and Dark Doc are confronting each other, that's the lesson Doc is going to be giving to Dark Doc, to himself, to Marty and Jennifer. And Clara. Or he's going to realize that while he's telling Dark Doc that he can't control the future and he can't change the past to make the future the way he wants, that's what he's been doing. And Clara. That's what Marty and Jennifer have been doing. They are also wearing these flux capacitor wristwatches. There's not one agent of chaos bouncing through time. There are five. So the way that they solve this conundrum to try to repair everything is Doc suggests that they just all take off their wristwatches. And that will reset everything, hopefully ripple back through all of their changes, and reality will right itself in whatever way reality will uh and then dark doc says something to the effect of but what what if we all vanish what if we all change what if it's worse and then doc says something you know intelligent and warm like that's just life that's the only option we've ever had uh we we can't control the future all we can do is make the best of what we can in the present that's, that's also where we get the title from. It's not just a time paradox, Paul, but it's there's a pair of docs. So like the full title. Oh, Back to the Future. What's the, what's the full title? Back to the Future, Pair of Docs. No, it's Back to the Future <laughs> Paradox. The Pair of Docs is subtext. 
Ugh. I love you. Paul. <laughs> I love you all, Paul. Um, oh, and the event, the event that was initially changed. And I, again, I don't know if we're going to find this out at the end, at the cathartic moment, if we're going to find it out sometime in the middle, at the beginning. I don't really know. It's wherever it's going to fit best emotionally. But the event that got changed was Doc and Marty's meeting. Without Doc and Marty's meeting, the first time travel experiment goes completely differently. Doc maybe just gets shot and dies. Maybe something else happens. Maybe without Marty there, he noticed the Libyans earlier. We don't know. But them not being together that first night changed everything. And I don't think we're ever going to see... I don't, I'm not interested in how they became friends. I don't think that'll be... I don't think there's an interesting... An answer as interesting as the question. So I don't want to answer it. I just want to sort of hint at it once they figure it out, like... Dark Doc stops Marty from going to some party or from leaving some party or whatever. And then Marty's like, wait a minute, Doc, that was the night we met. If I go to that party, you and I don't meet and we don't really see it. But maybe we kind of like get the idea that once it's fixed, we see we see young Marty. We just see him like walking down the road and we're like, there he goes. His date with destiny. Hopefully all is right in the world. Um. Because what I wanted to do is sort of like an ending where like we're unsure of what happens to the characters. They take their watches off. Time fixes itself. Maybe they fade. Maybe they don't. Bright light kind of thing. It's ambiguous. So maybe we like fade up to white onto that that meeting of Doc and Marty. Again, I'd rather not see how they met. But we know from context clues throughout the movie that, yes, they are going. That's where they're going to meet. God, I'm sorry. We just had um, some of that Little Caesars pizza with the pretzel crust. It was really great. Bye. Well, Paul, I guess um, where we're going, this is the end of the road. Oh, shit, we didn't come up with any more fun characters for Tom to do. Oh Shit. Also, Biff is there in a whole bunch of different fun ways. Bye! Thanks for listening to The Road Show. Remember to cast your votes for which pitch you think oughtn't to win. Write to us at The Follow-Up Showdown on Instagram or on Twitter at The Follow-Up Pod. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you like to leave your own two cents. And if you like, feel free to write in with your own pitch. We just love to hear from you. We'll see you next week for our season finale. Happy trails. Happy trails.